This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, Jamie Suskind, the best-selling author, discusses his new book, The Digital Republic, which looks to reboot society's relationship with big tech. Jamie Suskind is a barrister and writer whose skills are in demand from both the law courts, where he specialises in commercial employment, public and information and data law, and from publishers, for whom his writing, which sits at the crossroads of technology, politics and law, has provided them a best-selling book, 2018's Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech. Jamie is back with a new one, The Digital Republic, on freedom and democracy in the 21st century, which looks at the damaging influence of big tech on our everyday lives and offers ideas on how to reform that relationship. Hosting today's discussion with Jamie is another writer and strategic advisor working where culture meets technology, Nina Schick, author of Deepfakes and the Infocalypse. Here's Nina with more. Jamie, before we start... um... I'd just like to make a comment, and that is that as I was reading your book, I was struck by just how easy it is to read. You take very complicated ideas, many of them which have never even conceptualized, and you present them in a way that absolutely makes sense. So well done, especially when the content of your book is weighty, meaty, and as important as this. Now, I talked about the paradigm shift in human evolution. Things are changing so quickly and at a scale that we can barely comprehend. In your words, uh, in the introduction of your book, you say we are passive and impotent in the faces of forces we cannot control, uh, cannot understand, still less control. So can you maybe start by giving us a big picture overview of this state that we find ourselves in? What's changed? What's happening? And why do we need your book now? Well, I don't know about the last question, but I can tell you what I think is happening in the world, and it's this. I think we might be going through a transformation in human civilization that is as fundamental for us as the invention of writing was, or the agricultural revolution. And it's linked to the development of digital technologies. There are a few things happening in tech just now. The first is that systems are becoming more capable. So they're able to perform functions which we previously would have regarded as impossible for computers to perform, whether it's uh, game playing, word and text generating, problem solving, cancer diagnosing, car driving, whatever it is, in a whole variety of areas, technological capability is growing and it's growing at an accelerating rate. Secondly, It's not just that technologies are becoming more potent, it's that they're becoming more pervasive. They are everywhere. 
we rely on them for all of our daily actions, interactions and transactions, it's no longer possible to live a meaningful life without interacting with digital technology. There is no retreat or withdrawal. And finally, these technologies aren't, as it were, disinterested in us. They gather enormous amounts of data about us. Indeed, that's partly how they function so well. Uh, and that data is processed and used in ways that might often be mysterious. And it's a combination of those three things that mean we are moving into a, an unprecedented era. I mean, when our, when, our great, when our constitutions were written and our great political philosophy textbooks were written, none of what I've just described was the case. Now, of course, every period has had its upheavals, uh, but those upheavals have been momentous in the past, and there's no reason to think that ours might not be similar to that. And so in my work, I just try to look at the political consequences. It seems to me unlikely that we can live through such a change without it somehow affecting the way that we live together. And in my books and in this book, I try to identify what it is about technology that makes it so political, as I argue. And I argue that it's political because technology affects the distribution of power in society. It affects the quality of our democracy. It affects the quality of our liberty. And for all of those reasons, I argue that it needs to be governed in a way that respects our shared values. I couldn't agree more, um, especially this idea, and I really want to emphasize it, that this is a paradigm shift. This is, I would argue, not just innovation in terms of what's come before, but something utterly different that will change the fabric of our society. I see that in my own work on AI. So I would say that the starting premise of your book is quite radical because essentially you argue that the way that we've thought about things thus far, perhaps in the kind of last 30 years, is not going to solve some of the problems. We need to start fundamentally start thinking differently about the future. So let's get into that. You write that we need to become Republicans in order to effectively think about power and freedom in this new era. So can you explain what you mean by republicanism in the context of your work and your book? Yes, I'll take, definitely take that opportunity because it's important to stress that what, when I talk about the digital republic or digital republicanism, I am not talking about the capital R republicanism of the Republican Party in the United States or about Irish republicanism or about any other kind of republicanism which is to do with getting rid of kings and queens. Although all of those examples that I've just mentioned are part of the small r Republican tradition, which stretches back to ancient Rome. Republicanism is an ideology, it's a set of beliefs and attitudes, a bit like liberalism. And the essence of the Republican belief is that we should never be subject to the unaccountable power of others, even if those others happen to be benign. So, Republicans are against the idea of absolute monarchy, even when the king or queen happens to be a nice person. They are against the idea of very powerful landlords, even though some people might have nice landlords. They don't argue for nicer or kinder bosses at work. They argue for workplace protections in law. In the past, there have been feminist Republicans who say it doesn't matter if your husband happens to be nice to you. If there is an enshrined imbalance in power between you, then that imbalance is unsatisfactory. So, uh, and of course, some of the most famous Republicans have been anti-slavery in the sense that they weren't arguing for better slave masters. They were ask, advocating for the abolition of slavery altogether. So Republicanism is a philosophy that looks at the world and tries to reduce the imbalances of power that exist within it. And digital republicanism, which is the philosophy that I espouse in the book, applies that ancient philosophy, which has appeared in wars and revolutions and constitutions throughout history. It applies it to the modern context. And it says that essentially we are unfree so long as we are in the thrall of those who own, design and control powerful digital technologies. And we need to be able to hold them to account. And so I, I attack, I, attack is too harsh. I criticize the tendency in a lot of tech discourse to kind of focus on the character of people like Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk. Remember, it's not about whether the king is a good or a bad king. It's the idea of kingship at all. 
What I object to is the idea that someone like Elon Musk could have a profound effect on the democratic process simply by virtue of the fact that he has lots of money and can buy Twitter. So uh, it's about objecting to unaccountable power wherever it may be found. And those two words, unaccountable power, are the, are the center of my diagnosis, as it were, of what's gone wrong in the tech industry. Yeah. And like like you say in the book, it's not that you object to Mark Zuckerberg. It's that you object to the idea that can be a Mark Zuckerberg at all. So fundamentally, then you define republicanism as the belief that there should be no power with accountability. And it seems pretty uncontroversial, right? But this is fundamentally lacking in the status quo, as you've just described, and within the very foundations of the tech industry. And you write that we've been hitherto led by something called market individualism and that this has defined kind of the foundations of the tech industry as well. Can you elaborate on that as well, just because it's so important in how you kind of couch your argument? Absolutely. So the book is about a solution. It's about this thing called digital republicanism, which is a philosophy. And then I propose lots of policies and laws that might flow from it. But it begins by asking what the ideology is that's governed the tech industry until now. And I call that market individualism. And essentially, the way that we generate technology and the way that we regulate technology has been governed by this ideology. And it, often it's implicit. And market individualism basically holds that we're likely to reach the right outcomes if everyone pursues their own self-interest and they interact with each other as self-interested economic individuals um, bargaining for individual gain. But I, I think that that ideology has failed. I think it's failed in its own terms. I think that the regulation which has been built around that ideology uh, is plainly and not succeeding in protecting us. The best and most obvious example clicks up on our screen 50 times a day. It's notifications asking you if you agree to this or that use of your data. I mean, if you step back and think about it, it's completely farcical. No one reads that. No one could read it, uh, could read it all. If they did, they'd be met with terms that are so vague as to be useless. And yet that's at the heart of the market individualist belief that individuals, you and I, should be negotiating and bargaining with tech companies as to what rights we have vis-a-vis -vis them. I say nonsense. I say where there's a strong imbalance of power, leaving individuals to fight for themselves sounds like good liberal or libertarian policy, but in, event, in effect, it just, it just lets the powerful become more powerful. So um, the book is about a different way of thinking. It says that we have to try and escape the idea that in order to tackle the growing power of digital technology, we uh, should be doing it alone as individuals, even if that is kind of phrased in terms of individual empowerment, individual autonomy, individual dignity. These are all covers, in my view, for the fact that if we're to have any success in regulating big tech, it's going to have to be collective. And I mean, you're just talking about the farcical nature of the status quo, you even discuss in your book that, you know, even people like the president of the United States are going and kind of asking Facebook if, you know, they could remove certain things before elections. So this this should not at all be the status quo, right? This is what you're saying. This is a different way of thinking. Um, isn't the problem with the digital republic, however, that it's going to be difficult not only to convince kind of the titans of the tech industry who will not want to give up their power so quickly, but even the citizenry, that they should be Republicans rather than market individuals. Um, would Is there a risk that this might seem as too of an abstract notion of freedom um, in terms of you know the governance of digital technology for, for your everyday man, your voter? man, woman, voters? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I don't expect every citizen to kind of have at their fingertips the philosophical precepts of the Republican philosophy. But that's not what I'm asking for. I am asking for more, though, from people. I mean, my view is that for too long, we have all interacted with technology purely as consumers rather than as citizens, you know, asking, what can this product or service do for me rather than, in addition, what is it doing to society? And as you know, in the book, I propose various ways that ordinary people might be more involved in the political process in order to make sure that digital technologies are truly governed according to the values of the communities that they affect. But that's, that's it. 
in many ways, what I'm asking for is a kind of very basic thing, which is uh, an indignant spirit, as the philosopher Adam Ferguson put it. He was a, 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 an 18th century Republican thinker. It's not so much about be, all of us being philosophers as all of us being vigilant, uh, being on guard, being willing to spend a little bit of time thinking about and challenging digital power. And the reason I know it's possible is that we do do that when it comes to conventional politics. You know, not perfectly, you know, some people are better citizens than others, but we all know that it's our duty to a certain extent to turn out and vote, to try and keep up to date with political affairs. Uh, and all I'm trying to convince people of is that the digital is also political, that politics doesn't just end with parliaments and courts, that the devices and machines that increasingly surround us are, are vectors of power as well. And once you see that, then and that's what I try to show in the book, uh, then maybe the heightened demands of citizenship that Republican expects seem a little bit more obvious. Yeah. And um, I mean, in your in your first in the first half of your book, which you which is essentially diagnostic in nature, you point all this out and it makes five main points, which are, I think, worth just highlighting, because so many of these points are things that are just taken you know, it's just become normal, for instance, to say that technology is apolitical and that technology is neutral. And you take a very strong stance in stating the opposite. So just when it comes to the first half of your book, the kind of diagnostic, uh, you know, kind of where we're at right now, perhaps we could discuss each of those points in turn. So first of all, you state that technologies exert real power. What do you mean by that? Well, power is the ability, I mean, power has many definitions, but let's let's call it this. Let's say it's the ability to get people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do or not to do things they might otherwise have done. Um, technologies have the ability to do that uh, in three ways. The first is that they contain rules that we all have to follow. So if you imagine taking a drive in a self-driving car and you're dashing to the hospital for some reason, you might want that car to go over the speed limit. Um, just by a little bit, just to get you there on time. But the car might well refuse to do that. You might want to drive across a particular road, but the car might refuse because its GPS systems tell it it's tell you it's trespassing. You might want to park in a certain bay close to the hospital entrance, and again, the car might refuse to do it. Just like uh, the scooters we hire on the pavement won't go above a certain speed, or Twitter will not post a tweet if it is longer than 280 characters. When we interact with computer code, it contains rules that we don't have a choice about following or not. We have to. And so though increasingly we're surrounded by these rules, right? And those who write them are increasingly writing society's rules. So software engineers are becoming social engineers. Second way, uh, the technologies exert power is by gathering data about us. This is kind of two sub points. One is that data can be used to influence or manipulate us. The other is that sometimes just knowing that we're being watched is enough to make us change our behavior altogether. And it's a bit of a catch 22 because you'd think, you know, the more you know and understand about digital technology, the freer you might be, but it's not right. In fact, I think if most people were more aware about how much data was being gathered about them, I think they'd be much less likely to do so many things that the outside world might consider sinful or shameful or wrong. Um, the third way that digital technologies exert power is by framing our perception of the world. We increasingly rely on them, whether it's social media platforms, search engines, digital personal assistants. We rely on technologies to filter and determine what we see of the outside world, what we think is true and false, up or down, right or wrong. And, you know, e even if that isn't exercised, that power isn't exercised in a nefarious way, it is a kind of power because any of us can only ever handle a very small amount of reality. And those who choose which slice or chunk of reality we're given are, are able to affect our hearts and minds as profoundly as anyone in the past. So I think if you combine those three capabilities, you see that what we're dealing with is not just technologies that are more powerful in technical terms, but they're technologies that have real power in political terms too, and that's new. I absolutely could not agree with you more then because my own kind of area of interest is synthetic media, 
which is basically AI-generated media, which is going to become ubiquitous. And there's a deeply philosophical question at the heart of this, because essentially we are entering in our lifetime an era where AI will shape the very perception of reality for billions of people, right? So it is political because it's absolutely going to change the way you think. Uh, The question is ancient and philosophical, you know, what is the nature of reality? But we've reached epoch where the like like we've already discussed the very fabric of society is fundamentally going to be altered not least because technologies like ai are going to change our very perception of reality so perhaps then and i just really want to go over this point again you've already made it a few times but it's so important because technologists so often say ah well technology is neutral it's not political this is just a tool. What do you say to that, Jamie? When, when, uh, how would you respond to the technologists on the panel being like, "Oh, this is this is um, this is not political. This is neutral." Well, the first thing I should say is that um, your research on deepfakes, your book, deepfakes, has has been important in in my thinking. It's cited in the book. And anyone listening, if you're if you're interested in issues about the synthetic creation of speech and personality and the like, you should read Nina's book, particularly in the week we've just had where. The, the headlines, for instance, have been dominated by this new Google chatbot, which persuaded one of its creators, one of its engineers, that it had achieved sentience. We're really just scratching the surface. I just today on Twitter saw a university professor who'd been playing around with an AI tool that uh, to generate university level essays, answering essay questions. And he was saying, you know, it's not perfect, but it's it's now kind of surpassing that of his weaker students. We are just at the cusp of a world where machines, even though they don't think like we do, in fact, because they don't think like we do, are able to produce stuff that previously only humans could produce. And so I recommend Nina's work when it comes to that. Um, To those who say that technology is neutral, I have two responses. The first is that technology often isn't neutral. So if you design an algorithm that, you know, allocates jobs or insurance or credit or punishment to the criminal justice system, we know that algorithms are often riddled with biases because they're trained on uh, faulty or sometimes not faulty data sets. So for instance, you know, there are voice recognition systems that don't hear the voices of women because they've been trained only or mostly on male voices. Face recognition systems that don't see people of color uh, or people with facial disfigurements because they have been trained only on white faces or faces without facial disfigurements. Uh, choices which seem like engineering or data choices are actually political and, and are usually not neutral. But what about the technologies that actually genuinely do strive to be neutral? A good example is Google. So y- you'll all know the Google autofill system where you type in something and it tries to sort of anticipate the end of your query. There was this problem with Google for a number of years where it was returning unfortunate uh, results in the autofill box. So if you typed in, why do Jews, it would complete the sentence with have big noses or control the media or love money so much. And the reason that happened was not because uh, the uh, engineers at Google didn't like Jews. It was because that algorithm neutrally and faithfully reproduced the searches that other people had done. Indeed, it was simply reflecting back to us things that previous searchers had found useful. And that was always the Google defense. But in that case, it seems to me pretty obvious that neutrality, a neutral system, is also a kind of undesirable or unjust system. It doesn't make the world better. Instead, it kind of amplifies injustices and makes them worse, uh, which is why the uh, is why Desmond Tutu once said, you know, if the elephant is standing on the tail of the mouse and the and you say you're neutral, the mouse isn't going to thank you. Um, and Elie Wiesel, the, the great Holocaust survivor, used to say that neutrality favors the oppressor. The, the basic point is that neutrality and justice, neutrality and rightness are not always the same thing. And so for years, you know, folks, myself included, argued that well, instead of engineering that in a neutral way, Google could in fact design a system that maybe reduced the prevalence of racist or otherwise unpleasant stuff on their platform. 
And for years, Google said, no, 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 we're neutral, we're neutral. And then eventually just started doing it and the world didn't fall in. So change is possible. Um, Another key point you make in your kind of diagnostic uh, analysis is that we've already talked about it, that the that the foundation of digital technology today has been ordered by this market economy logic, right? Why? Why have we allowed this to happen? What have politicians been doing? What have regulators been doing? Why is that the status quo? And how has it just crept up on us so imperceptibly that it's the new reality? So many answers to that question. And it's such a good question. The first is that we have capitalism to thank for a lot of the explosive productivity and creativity that has created the tech industry, particularly in Silicon Valley. Now, we know through the research of people like Mariana Mazzucato that actually a lot of what looks like private sector innovation is in fact a combination of private and public sector innovation. So the point can be taken too far, but there's no doubt that capitalist principles of competition and the like have led to explosive productivity uh, in the generation of technologies. So people rightly and understandably regard it as a good thing. Secondly, there has been an advantage, I think, in American policy circles, a perceived advantage to having what are essentially American capitalist principles being the kind of cornerstone of the internet and spreading around the world. It's been seen as a form of soft power for the United States. Uh, that people use American products, use American protocols, use American software, use American hardware. And again, that dissemination of American soft power is often best effected through the market. But there's a third, I think, and more deep reason. And here, you know, I have to put my philosopher hat on. I think a lot of, I think there's been a real success in the market individualist community, should we say, of making the market individualist ideologies seem like nature, like the natural state of affairs is the market economy and that anything interfering with it, such as regulation, is a kind of uh, alien intervention which needs to be justified. There is some truth in that, but it not entirely. Markets, particularly sophisticated markets like the tech market, do not appear in nature, or at least uh, not very often. The market itself is a construct of laws, laws relating to property, laws relating to corporations, laws relating to contract and tort, laws relating to intellectual property, without which you know we wouldn't have the modern tech industry. And a lot of people take these laws for granted. They say they want to deregulate, but they don't want to de deregulate these laws. They just want to deregulate the laws that uh, try to protect um, the public interest rather than those that protect the private interest of those who own and control technologies. So there's a kind of ideological point there that even now I, I sometimes find myself slipping into the, you know, the, 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 the question of regulation versus deregulation. But actually the real question is what kind of regulation is best? Because we already do have regulation. It's just that that regulation is geared towards making markets rather than protecting citizens. Um, those I think are the main reasons why market individualism has thrived. Uh, and I think final point, loads of people have become really rich and powerful through it. And, you know, any system that seeks to dismantle that is going to come up against resistance. Absolutely. Um, and I suppose that's a nice seg kind of almost into the second half of the book, where you lay out this blueprint for, for the digital republic. But just talking about the balance of power now and politics, like you mentioned, we tend to think about it as, you know, political power lying in the halls of parliament um, within elected officials. Uh, but the problem is that power now often is in the hands of unaccountable leaders of tech. How, I mean, just considering the political situation in the UK and in many other Western democracies around the world, I mean, isn't part of the problem that they have been so terrible at anticipating this, doing anything about it? And moreover, would we even have faith in our leaders to be able to navigate these kind of huge seismic changes that are taking place? How can we kind of, what can we do about the inability of our leaders, our elected officials to navigate this unprecedented time? Or any comments about that? Well, I mean, 
there is a very basic rebuttal to my book, which is to say politics is, that's all very nice. In theory, these would all be very nice laws, but politics is so useless, so corrupt, that it'll never happen in practice. Regrettably, in some places, I think that is probably true. That doesn't mean I don't still think it's a valuable exercise to try and think about what an ideal situation a digital republic would look like. But I would say that some countries have done better than others. And, uh, you know, if you look at somewhere like Europe, they are the European Union, they are busily legislating on these issues in a way that not everyone will agree with, but in a way that is doubtlessly very sophisticated. Um, And they've really been playing catch up in the last five or six years, but they've been doing it well. Even here in the UK, things like the online safety bill, which is going through Parliament just now, it's pretty—it's pretty advanced piece of legislation. That you know, a lot of countries will be looking to the UK to see how it works, if it works. I think the situation in the US is more difficult. I think that congressional gridlock uh, means and kind of partisan bickering means that it's very hard to. to get anything done and there's always the looming threat of first amendment challenges as well for anything that relates to social media so you know i am pro politics i believe that if as a civilization a species we are to have hope it has to be through politics and political structures mainly democratic ones um i try not to throw my hands up in despair although i often do uh, but no, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with you. If if we're so bad at governing that we can't get anything right, then we're unlikely to get this tech stuff right. But you know, my contribution is to try and make things a little clearer. Here's why, what we should do, and why we should do it, and maybe that removes at least one roadblock in the way to reform. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. Ultimately, forward is the only direction that we can go. And I think that anybody who offers the view into the future, whether it's a, a justified or something that's that's fantastical, really does settle us and reduces our anxiety uh, so that we can imagine where we're going to be. Thanks to huge leaps forward in science and technology, we can now predict the future with more accuracy than any time in history, not just the next year, but the next 500. We can spot threats and in some cases fend them off. From climate to biotech, 
AI to astronomy, experts are now able to speak with unprecedented authority about what will actually happen in the future. That's where the Ytree Futureverse comes in. In this new series from Intelligence Squared and Ytree, we bring you the conversations, ideas, and insights that are driving change and shaping our future. The best way to predict the future is to make it. So people out there in the laboratories, in the field, you know, making the new technologies, those are the people we should be asking what the future is going to be. You know, we talk about the great resignation of young people leaving companies, but more and more CEOs are stepping aside and saying, actually, I want to work for companies and organizations that are purpose-driven. And in 50 years' time, it is my generation, the climate generation, who are going to be in these seats of power. So I absolutely have hope. Drawing on the expertise of artists, scientists, financial experts, and climate activists, the Futureverse is at the forefront of the world's most crucial issues and questions. Subscribe to the Futureverse on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The past is in your head, the future is in your hands. It's such an important contribution because nobody is saying that you need to, you know, solve all of the world's problems by yourself, but just by kind of conceptualizing the problem and diagnosing it and offering an alternative. Um, you know, that is very important, I would argue, to kind of the change that you want to see or that we, we, we kind of, I think I, I agree with you, that is necessary in terms of thinking about this era, which we're navigating now. But OK, so. One question about the U.S. I mean, I'm here right now um, before I move on to my next question. And it seems to me the gridlock that you mentioned is just so awful. Uh, isn't it arguable that, you know, without the U.S. on board, without any kind of impetus to change the way we think about technology and power and governance in the U.S., that this is just not going to work worldwide because you you need you need strong movement from the US, not just from the EU or the UK. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book with the philosophy of republicanism is that I'm trying to say that actually this isn't a left-wing or right-wing doctrine. Republicans are hostile to concentrated power. That should appeal to Republicans, big to capital R Republicans, who worry about the power and size of the state. It should also appeal to capital R Republicans in the kind of Theodore Roosevelt tradition, because he was a great small R Republican thinker and president. Um, but it should also appeal to Democrats who uh, are, are concerned about over mighty corporate power. I'm trying to say there's something there for everyone in a way that, you know, maybe with issues like abortion or gun control, there just isn't. And, you know, I may be forlorn, forlorn in this. Put it more cynically, perhaps the horrible partisan inclinations of both sides will at some point meet and achieve something useful on uh, tech regulation. I don't know if that's the case. I mean, I know that the Biden administration takes it really seriously. And certainly in the kind of federal agencies that are responsible for governing this sector, whether it's in terms of antitrust or um, data transfers or the like, they're trying to be more activist, but there do need to be different laws. I mean, the, the US, I think, is the only advanced democracy in the world that doesn't have omnibus data protection legislation. It's mad. Once you gather personal data about people in the States, there's, if you're a private company, there's basically no restraints on what you can do with it, as long as it doesn't fall into specific categories of data, like health data. So uh, the laws do need to change. Actually, what's interesting is that in the States, you're increasingly seeing state-level efforts. Um, so there's been some interesting movement in California, some interesting movement in Illinois. Um, states are becoming kind of little cauldrons, little laboratories of experimentation. And I think that's probably a good thing. In the digital republic, given that we've discussed, you know, the absolute dismal state of, you know, our politics, a, a state which I think that most people would, uh, you know, most people are becoming increasingly cynical of. What is the role then of the citizen? What what role does a citizen play in the digital republic if if this isn't just for the politician to regulate? Well, there's a kind of grand and uh, flowery answer to that and then a much more nitty gritty one. I'll maybe start with the nitty gritty one. I, yes. I believe that there is an underused method of democratic organization known as deliberative mini publics. 
and the, and the Greeks, the ancient Greeks used these a lot. And it basically, it's basically a form of democratic engagement, which isn't like a referendum or an election. What it involves is gathering together a, a smallish group of people, randomly selected by sortition, and putting them in what's called ideal deliberative conditions. So um, providing them with balanced information, providing them with access to experts, providing them with moderation. And what research shows is that if you take ordinary folks and you put them in ideal deliberative um, situations, they normally do a really good job of finding answers to tricky moral problems, not necessarily pro answers that everyone will agree with, but they're much better under those conditions at deliberating than they are in ordinary conditions of day-to-day -day life where they don't have the time span or the attention span or the um, information necessarily necessary to be the best possible citizens. And so I think uh, we could do, and so deliberative mini publics have been used recently in all kinds of interesting ways, but the, the most obvious example is in Ireland uh, in relation to um, the legalization of abortion there. Uh, that process began with a deliberative mini public, which reached a set of conclusions that were eventually put to the Irish people and accepted. So I think there are a lot of tech problems, big and small, which I would like to see governed by deliberative mini publics. Um, whether it's you know sitting in judgment on a particular decision that a platform's taken, or in the oversight of a merger or an acquisition, uh, or in deciding what kind of moderation rules would comprise a reasonable system of moderation, whatever it is, I think ordinary folks can and should be more involved because right now they're basically not involved at all, and it's done behind closed doors in the corporate boardrooms of Silicon Valley. Participating in these things, though, is a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a, a burden and it would be like jury duty. Um, but I'd like to see it. You know, I unashamedly think our country and countries would be better if more and more people did that. So that's the nitty gritty. That's the kind of thing that would be expected of citizens. The airy flowery one is simply to say, as I did at the beginning, that we need to completely reorient how we think about digital technology. We need to stop thinking about it just as consumers, but rather start seeing it as citizens. I want people to bring the same skeptical, hard-nosed, common sense approach that they do to powerful technologies as they currently do to powerful politicians. Absolutely. I mean, essentially, your argument is a call for skepticism and being critical, but without lapsing into cynicism. And uh, we haven't really had enough time to delve into the blueprint, um, the second half of the book, because we're already running out um, and we're going to be opening for Q&A shortly. But I'll ask you one more question before we open for questions. And because you are a barrister by training, what is the role of the judiciary or how do we even conceive of legal systems in the digital republic? I'll try and give a, I mean, I've been giving horribly long answers, which is why you've run out of time. I'm sorry, Nina. I'm sorry, okay. listeners. Um, I'll, try and, I'll try and give a short, but uh, appropriately loyally answer. When people, you know, there are lots of people in society who have positions of responsibility. So a parent has responsibility to their children. A banker has responsibility to the people whose money they hold. A lawyer has responsibility to their clients. A doctor has responsibility to their patients, responsibility to their patients. The, the law looks at these people and it doesn't say, well, let them use their good judgment about what's best as we currently do in the tech industry. The law does something different. It imposes duties on those people. So a banker owes his clients fiduciary duties in relation to the monies they hold. Uh, a doctor owes their client a duty of care. Uh, a parent owes fiduciary duties to their children. The law can create all kinds of different duties, right? And it can and it can specify the content of those duties. Sometimes those duties are contractual in agreements, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they are just imposed on us. So a doctor owes a duty of care to his patient or her patient, even if they haven't signed a contract saying that. That's a duty that the general law imposes. And so what I propose in the book is a, is a kind of uh, patchwork of different laws, suitable different rights and duties and standards to govern the tech industry in a way that holds it accountable, just like we would hold any other powerful group in society accountable. 
It, j just one last point, and um, this is an important one, I think. You write in your book um, at the end of the introduction that one of your anxieties in writing this book is that it, quote, seeks to change a system that is very appealing to millions or even billions of people. So I think the point that you make is that you want to get people to understand that you can enjoy all the benefits that technology brings without submitting to the unaccountable power of those who design and own it. I think that's a really important point. So thank you, Jamie. I know we could have spent much longer discussing the second half of your book, but let's let's jump to questions now. So why do you think all attempts, Jamie, so far to rein in the power of the tech giants has failed from, from Raoul? Good question, Raoul. I'll gently challenge the premise. I don't think all attempts have failed. I think that, you know, in Europe, for instance, we have things like the GDPR governing data usage is not a perfect law by any stretch and it's definitely not future proofed, but it is a damn sight better than what they have in the United States. Um, <laughs> there are all kinds of political reasons why countries aren't so good at regulating tech, um, but I think the worst and most pervasive myth is that regulation is, is, is kind of anti-competitive, that countries or blocks that regulate will be less innovative. That's not, that's not in my experience or, or according to research, really right. But regulation encourages economic activity when it's done right. So you're much more likely to go out. When you go out for a meal, you're much more likely to eat in the restaurant, which has a certificate in its window saying that it's been health and safety checked. Uh, if that restaurant doesn't have such a certificate, you're, you're maybe just marginally less likely to eat there. The same is true of technologies. We're much more likely to engage in, with new technologies if we feel that they have been safety checked and uh, made accountable and representative in some way. So uh, there's also the point that regulations level the playing field. One of the interesting things about the GDPR is it doesn't just govern the way that we use data, it set rules that were common across the EU. So data users in you know, Germany could exchange data with people in France and, and Spain knowing that the rules are the same. Again, that's good for economic activity. There is also this, I think, so, so part of what I'm trying to do in my book, Raul, is to disrupt the idea that any kind of regulation is anti-business, which I think a lot of governments are very, very afraid of. There is, however, growing a much more difficult argument to rebut, which I think will be the main block to reform in the future. And it's what I would call digital nationalism. I think there is a palpable sense in the corridors of power in Russia, in China, in America, in the EU, that developing faster and faster artificial intelligence systems is going to be the key to geopolitical dominance in the future. Uh, and they may also consider that having essentially a deregulated system is the best way to achieve that dominance. Um, I don't really disagree with the first premise. I do disagree with the second one, but I think it's going to be the main roadblock to kind of main mental roadblock to countries realizing that they have to regulate properly. That said, look at what's happening in the EU. There's a draft Artificial Intelligence Act. There's a draft Digital Services Act. There's a draft Digital Platforms Act. These are big, substantial bits of regulation, many of which are Republican in nature. Uh, and they do show that it can be done. Jamie, next question is from Becky. Uh, she says, essentially, most users of the Internet are only too happy to exchange their data for convenience by clipping, clicking accept. Do you feel the need to bring ordinary people on board with your agenda or are we essentially all too complacent? Well, um, another great question. Why do we click accept? I, the first is that when we click accept, we're normally clicking accept to a really good economic bargain. So I give something that's basically of not much use to me economically, a little bit of data. I give that to Google or Facebook. And in return, I get these amazing products. You know, Google, my portal to the web, Facebook, historically has been an amazing way of linking a vast number of people. So it's a very seductive commercial bargain. But of course, there are other reasons why we click accept. We can't be bothered to read the terms and conditions. We don't really have a choice. We have to use the system for work or convenience, et cetera, et cetera. 
the problem here, I don't believe, is people being complacent. Because I believe that the wrong mechanism is being used to mediate between people and the powerful. The correct mechanism wouldn't be giving people the responsibility to read and understand and choose every time they interact with a digital product. That should be done at the collective level through systems of certification, of accreditation, of regulation. So when you walk into a building, you know, it's not like some bloke at the door presents you with a series of schematics and you can do the equations in your head about whether you think, you know, the building's going to collapse while you're inside it or not, whether you think it's structurally sound or its engineering is on point. You rely on the fact that that building is going to be in some way certified as safe for habitation, that the people who built it will have been certified and qualified engineers and architects. And you don't click I consent, you just go. And I think a lot of the same is true of tech. We shouldn't have the responsibility as individuals to fight for ourselves. And yet, the kind of politically it's so seductive for companies and governments to say, we want to give more power to individuals, we want to give people autonomy and control, but actually autonomy and control are almost impossible in this world. And if we're going to rival in the world of digital technology in particular, and it's a kind of fallacy to think that individual freedom relies on us all acting as individuals. No, individual freedom can be secured through collective uh, action. So just to take a, you know, a very simple example, if we had data unions negotiating on our behalf with Facebook, that would mean that if Facebook did something undesirable, it would risk losing a million users overnight, not just one. You know, if I stop using Facebook, no one cares. Facebook especially doesn't care. But if everyone in my data union was threatening to walk out, that would make a difference. It's a very simple analogy. But the point is, collectively, there is power. Individually, there is only weakness. Yeah. And I mean, just a little anecdote on the fallacy of the individual in that context uh, in terms of having any power. You know, my little act of rebellion sometimes is when I click through and I reject everything. I'm like, no, I do not accept. I reject. And then, of course, you know, you have a mobile phone, you have a Gmail account. So, of course, <laughs> the fact that you rejected, you haven't clicked accept makes no difference at all. Um, Jasper asks Jamie, whether there was a turning point in the last 20 years for things could have gone very differently and which decision on the part of a government and b the tech companies could have made things go differently i mean i suppose if i'm to remain true to my diagnosis that what's really gone wrong in the last 20 years is the way that we think about digital technology we think as market individualists rather than as in my view republicans um that would mean i probably wouldn't point to a particular turning point. What I would say is that from the 90s onwards, there was a very cozy consensus that the internet would work best if basically a lot of it was left purely to market forces. Um, interestingly, that's not true of platforms who in America had protections, additional legal protections uh, under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Um, but I won't get into that. But basically, no, I think what we are faced with is a sort of generational problem in the way that we think about technology. Everything seemed to be going well for a while. And so the market individualist mindset, I think, became entrenched. And we're going to have to unlearn a lot of the things that that generation in the 90s took for granted as being a naturally good thing. Um, I do think there was another turning point in 2016, but in a sense, a good one. I mean, a lot of nonsense is written about what happened in 2016 with Brexit and Trump and the like. But what it did was it raised the question of the power of digital technology to the top of the political agenda. And that, and that I think, is a good thing. So, Jamie, Shani asks, do you see a parallel between the printing revolution and the tech revolution? Do you think the Internet could ever be regulated the way that society continues to regulate and censor the printed word? Uh, there are definitely analogies in the sense that I think every time a society undergoes a revolution in the technologies that it uses to store and communicate information, then big political and social changes follow. So the invention of writing, the invention of the printing press, the invention of the broadcast press, uh, the broadcast media, you know, the mass media of the 20th century, and then finally the invention of the internet. Each of those has brought with them social and political upheavals. 
Um, I, there's a few chapters in the book about, you know, why regulating the internet or regulating social media in particular is not the same as, but can perhaps learn a bit from how we regulate traditional media. And just to make things more complicated, you'll know that in this country, you know, actually the printed word, newspapers, is much less regulated than the broadcast media. So broadcasters, you know, they have to have a license and that license is dependent on them satisfying a number of quite serious requirements about being fit, fit and proper and about how they conduct themselves. And Ofcom regulates that. We don't really have something similar for newspapers. In this country, newspapers are much more uh, boisterous and partisan than news channels generally are. Um, obviously, in the last year or two, there's been a sort of move to try and create more of a kind of American-style ma uh, broadcast media system, but we'll see if that works. So I think there are lessons to be drawn, certainly from the way that we regulate broadcast media, and to a certain extent from the restraint that we show in the newspaper realm. But I do think that there are a number of really key differences between social media platforms and the forms of media that came before. Just to name a few off the top of my head, you know, the newspaper never read you back, the TV never watched you back. This, the, the media that we engage with just now are two-way uh, rather than one-way, and that affects the way they work. Secondly, if you and I read The Guardian on a particular day, we will be reading the same thing by and large. That's not true of when we look at our newsfeed on Twitter or on Facebook. Uh, and so that requires a different, a slightly different approach. And um, thirdly, there is a degree of customization that is linked to the first two points. These systems gather data about us and then they present information to us in a way that is tailored, uh, that is not the case in broadcast and newspaper uh, realms. Fourthly, in the newspaper industry and in the broadcast industry, there are long-standing and acceptable norms, accepted norms about what constitutes a good journalist. We know what good journalists do. They tell the truth, they check their sources, they give people a chance to comment. That same mature set of norms doesn't exist when it comes to social media. There hasn't been decades of kind of development of it. And so we're all kind of stumbling and fumbling in the dark. Two final differences. One is a question of scale. Facebook has more adherence than Christianity. 94% um, of 18 to 24-year-old Americans use Facebook. 94%. There's no television channel or newspaper that can come anywhere close to that. And so the kind of planetary scale of the challenge just raises different policy and regulatory uh, questions and, and issues. Um, and rather than give you a final point, I'll, I'll just leave it there. But I'll say that there's certainly lessons to be drawn from regulation of the media in the past, but the challenge is quite different. And I just really want to agree with Jamie on that point, because if you kind of think about the great technical uh, technical transformations in the past, whether it was the invention of the printing press or uh, broadcast media, if you look at the time space in which these developed, you know, they were traditionally much, much more time for society, for these inventions to become integrated into society. So they were integrated into existing frameworks. But if you look at what's happened in the past 30 years in the age of information and what's happening now as we enter the age of AI, the changes are happening so much more quickly and the capacity of the technologies are so huge, you know, exponentially different that you can't even compare. It's like comparing apples with pears. Um, and that's why I think both of us, Jamie and I, really agree that, you know, this is a paradigm change and this is fundamentally why we have to think about things differently, as uh, Jamie so compellingly argues in his book. So Ali asks you, Jamie, um, whether the tech giants will voluntarily cede power or whether they will have to be compelled by law to do so. I can give quite, I can give quite a short answer to that. Uh, I, I think in the end, they'll have to be compelled. Um, makes it sound very kind of brutal, but of course, you know, we all have to obey laws. I think tech giants will give up power, but only to the extent that it's in their interest to do so within the marketplace. Beyond that, you're going to have to make it a matter of law. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, Jamie, uh, somebody asks about Twitter's decision to ban Donald Trump from its platform and whether you think a regulatory body should have the right to overturn such a decision. So this is a great example of um, the kind of issues I was talking about at the beginning. Um, it strikes me as problematic that any platform should have an unfettered ability to remove a president of the United States, regardless of whether you like him or not. 
regardless of whether you agree with it as a decision or not. So what should the state do when it comes to um, regulating that? Well, I am uncomfortable also with the idea that the government should be ordering platforms directly what to do with particular individuals or particular bits of content. So what do you do? I think that the answer, and it's a bit of a fudge, but the answer is that you require platforms to have in place rules, procedures, and systems that are public, transparent, and properly enforced, and can be appealed against, if not, to govern situations like the Trump situation. So it's not just Mark Zuckerberg deciding finally that Trump had crossed the line, uh, but rather decided in a way that is as part of a reasonable and proportionate system for such decisions. I think that's the best we can hope for. And so I think that some platforms would expel him, some platforms wouldn't. But all I care about is that they're doing so in a way that is consistent with rules and that those rules are acceptable in a democratic society. Um, Ina Vantaro asks a very philosophical question, I suppose, about the nature of agency and freedom. She says, generations of people, especially in the Western world, are accustomed to at least having the illusion of agency. We've grown up in democracies that at least seem to be accountable to their populations, with big tech getting so much more control of the way our societies are run, whilst their accountability and tax payments to us are arguably negligible, can any single country let any single politician change anything? Sounds like she's a Republican. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I think we share the same instincts. It's just that I may be more optimistic than you. Uh, I look around and I do see countries that are doing, I mean, the fact that some do a better job than others is to me suggestive of the fact that there are good and bad ways of approaching this issue. Um, I wouldn't have written this long book if I thought it was impossible. I definitely don't think it's the job of one politician. You know, I agree with you on that. But do I think one country can make a difference? Yeah, I absolutely do. At the very least, it can make a difference to the people who live within it. So, I mean, the UK is a decent example. If the UK passes the online safety bill, you know, there are bits of it I agree with, there are bits of it I disagree with. But the UK will have, a, at the very least, a more protective regime than its neighbours in Europe. Uh, and it will have made a difference. Absolutely. Uh, freedom is worth fighting for. Elizabeth asked, Jamie, if, if a company relies on an algorithm for its revenues, should the state be able to interfere in its operation, even if it doesn't break discrimination laws? Uh, yes, of course it should. I mean, if any company is using a technical product that is unfit for purpose in some way, uh, then whether it's because of a fault with the hardware or the software or the data or the people working at that company, it shouldn't be above the law. Um, we already regulate algorithms in all kinds of sectors. You know, for instance, there are the algorithms that are in a slot machine are closely regulated by the states. Obviously, they're quite simple. Now, you might be hinting at the fact that there are difficulties in enforcement and transparency when it comes to, you know, machine learning algorithms, and that's undoubtedly true. But... Um, uh, that, that doesn't mean that the state shouldn't be interested in the outcomes that those systems generate and whether they are consistent with our norms or not. The reason I say norms is because discrimination law, as it currently exists, and I, you know, I practice as a discrimination lawyer, I, I'm not 100% convinced that it will be sufficient to meet the challenges and problems that um, algorithms can raise. So, for instance... Um, it's not unlawful in the UK just now to discriminate against someone based on class. It's just not one of the protected characteristics in law. But you can well imagine a recruitment system or a university uh, admission system inadvertently or indirectly discriminating against people based on where they come from. Perhaps its system would say, well, actually, people who come from that part of town tend not to do as well as people who come from that part of town. But the first part of town might be somewhere where there's more poverty. And as a society, we might say, well, actually, that's the, that's the bit of town we should, we should be prioritizing. We shouldn't be uh, entrenching the inequality. But discrimination law has no answer to that. And uh, so I think that discrimination laws are great, but we may need to extend them in the future. So that and I talk about this quite a lot in the digital republic. I, a lot of what we need to do is make sure that our laws are fit for purpose and are consistent with our norms. Another one, for instance, is, you know, Facebook have derived an algorithm which, for one reason or another, can tell whether you are more or less likely to pay back your debts by looking at 
whether the people who are in your Facebook network, Facebook friends, have themselves paid back their debts. Now, it might well be that statistically speaking, if you are friends with lots of people who haven't paid their debts, you are statistically more likely yourself not to pay your debts. But there is, it seems to me, a moral question there, a policy question about whether that kind of algorithm should be an appropriate uh, and usable kind of algorithm. When I apply for a mortgage to house my family, should should the fact that you know my brother happened to be or my sister or my friend happened to be a bankrupt, should that affect my chances? And as a society, we might well say no. That's not discrimination law. That's not something really that the law has much answer for just now. And so let's be wary, I think, of just asking whether existing laws should apply and always ask whether we need new ones too to reflect our shared norms. And uh, that is unfortunately all we have time for. I know we didn't get to all of your questions, but it is such a big, important topic. And with his book, it's out now. The Digital Republic, Jamie, has made a very valuable contribution. I encourage you all to pick up a copy. But for now, thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Nina. And thank you, everyone, for joining. If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month, ad-free listening and early access to currently available via Apple Podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.